Welcome to episode 19 of How About the Muskies. I'm Connor, joined with Matt, Andrew, and Matt. And we got another interesting episode here for you guys. UConn coming off a couple of losses this past week at Marquette and then at home, actually, versus St. John's. Two tough losses. The Marquette one, we'll just talk about it briefly. We did a live stream, myself, Matt, and Matt. We were live the whole game. So if you want our thoughts about that, go check that live stream out. It's on the YouTube page. UConn fell to a very talented Marquette team on the road. Road games are hard in the conference. We know that. So I'm not too too upset about that one. But we'll just quickly shift gears now to the St. John's game, which some of us, we aren't happy. I mean, recap real quick. It was 85-74 loss. And honestly, just because we had a couple free throws late, it was a larger deficit than that. Uh, St. John's just was more physical than us. They just wanted it more. And a couple of bunch of guys didn't really show up for UConn. Jordan Hawkins, I'll highlight him real quick. He had a career-high 31. He was really... He had one of his games where he was on fire, and he was just just overall the, probably the, one of the best players on the floor, if not the best. But outside of that, you have Caravan with his 16, another solid game on the road for him. Or excuse me, not on the road. But he had a solid game on the road versus Marquette, another ga- solid game, two in a row. And uh, Sonogo had a double-double. But besides that, there were like 13 total points between the rest of the people. So those three really showed up. And Sonogo, you could argue he – did, didn't. That's up for debate. We could talk about that after, but just overall a tough loss to a St. John's team that wasn't very good in Big East play. They were like one and six, I believe, going into this game. So not a loss you want to have, especially after the hot start we had to the season. Well, I just got to go back to the point that I've brought up probably 85 times on this podcast, but apparently the players don't listen to it because this team just still doesn't have an ounce of intensity that last year's had like no one on this team, maybe besides Hawkins and Klingon that I saw in that game matches the intensity of guys like Tyrese Martin, Isaiah Whaley, and even RJ Cole and Tyler Polly. Like it's just, especially in that game where you really need the crowd to get into it, to try to get the Johnnies to mess up, miss shots and stuff. You can't have people just shrugging off really good shots. Like I saw Hawkins when he got that nice dunk, you know, he flex on him, but people like Caravan make a three and they just turn around and run back. So, I mean, we just, we can't have things like that because like, you can say whatever you want about the loss, the refs, the players on both sides, whatever you can say, whatever about that. But I have to point out the intensity thing because that's where I draw my biggest difference from last year to this year is, you know, is, does this team have more talented players? Maybe, but they sure as hell don't have more intensity than last year's because Last year's team would not have led an 11-point game to a far, far worse team at a packed XL uh, center happen. So that's that's just my first point, is that the intensity on this team has to be higher. Has to, has to, has to be higher. Because we can't continue to lose games like that. I entirely agree. And what, you know, Hurley has an emotion. I feel like the players lack. You know, I, I was talking about in a previous episode how we need more of Danny Hurley's enthusiasm on the court. Um, I mentioned he can't play the game for them, so they're going to have to do it. But, you know, you have you have to have players who come out and, you know, want to get excited. They want to pump the crowd up and they, they want to get the, the, the building popping. I'd say we have, you know, maybe one or two players like that. One of them is Joey Calcaterra. And when you're not playing well, it's impossible to have these things happen. Um, he heated up towards the end, but I mean – having a guy who hits shots in moments that don't matter doesn't really help you and sure it'll help you beat non-conference teams. But what about when you're in conference playing tough teams? And, you know, I've been talking about the St. John's game a lot uh, throughout the season because I knew that they matched up really well against us. Um, they have perfect size in uh, Joe Soriano and he made Sonogo look small. Um, he made Son- Sonogo he showed up, but he was a non-factor at the same time. He had 14 and 10. He shot six of nine. You know, that's good. That's a good night for, you know, a majority of centers in college basketball. But Soriano just did something on the defensive end that nobody's been able to do all year. Uh, he had 19 points. He had 13 rebounds, and he shot seven of 10. Sonogo couldn't do anything. Uh, Curbelo had a good night. Uh, what did he have? He had um, he had 10 points, two assists, but they were allowed 10 points. He would get in the paint easy, and he would let you know it. And he's got to be one of the most frustrating players to play against just because of, you know, the way he dresses. He wears those 
specs with the headband and he has this big afro coming out of it and you know it's you know when Cravello's on the floor and you hate him for it but you know it's fine you hate you hate how flashy he is you hate how much he sticks it to you but when he's playing like he is he deserves to and when he's making you look like that on your own floor he deserves to do that to you and I just I, I can't think of anyone else on UConn quite like him and I feel like every team has a player like that who you know is going to give it to you when they know they're on or when they know the team is on UConn lacks that of course we have Hurley as our coach which is like a human ball of emotion and energy but you know you need guys on the court to do that yeah and the frustrating part of this game to me was giving up 85 points and St. John's made two threes the entire game so what that was showing me, and this is something I noticed when I was watching, was our guards just could not pick up on the perimeter. The other team's guards were getting whatever they want. And then one thing I was thinking the whole game is where's the hell defense at? Who's rotating over? Because, like I said, they only made two threes. Obviously, St. John's wasn't a shooting threat. So giving up 85 to St. John's in the Big East, which is a defensive conference, whoever's defense is better is going to win the game. That's not going to cut it. Giving up 70-whatever to Marquette, that's not going to cut it. And we know that this UConn team's defense is better than what they've shown with the athletes they have, with some stronger guys they have. I know our guards are a little slight of frame, but that's what's frustrating to me. And as stupid as it sounds, they just need to learn to win again. They need to get in the film room and really put some things together, put some pieces together. Like, where's the help defense? Why are they getting burnt on the perimeter? Um, the really bad turnovers, like moving screens, which some of them are ticky-tacky on the refs or catching the ball out of bounds. A lot of this stuff looked like film room stuff. So, you know, like, you know, we're 15 and four right now. That's not terrible. But the Big East record is 500, which is that is a whole different season. And I knew there was going to be some bumps in the road. You know, I kept saying it at the beginning of the year. They're going to lose some games. I didn't think it would be this bad, but they just need to learn to win again. And, you know, like Kirk Cousins said that one time, nobody's perfect. So, um, but at the same time, they've been bad lately. Yeah, no, we've noticed the past few games now. Hurley's trying to implement this this zone defense, which we haven't seen uh, from Hurley, really. And I honestly feel like it has a lot to do with a lot of what people are saying, you know, about the defensive end. And for some reason, he loves to throw Sonogo and Klingon in the middle of the zone. That doesn't make any sense to me, because where's your rim protection if he has to come out and help the top? What, what are you going to do? You're going to have Andre Jackson step back? Are you going to have Naheem Aline step back? Who's going to step back? Who's going to come back and help you protect the paint when you're facing fast guards and you have, I don't even know who on the floor. We have two capable defenders out there who I would feel comfortable with running that zone. Aline and Diara. Those are the only two guys. What about if we have Joey on the floor? Are you going to run the zone if we have Joey on the floor who's, you know, lacks defense but makes up for an offense? All the way up there, he uh, he gets blown by, right? So now go steps up. Then what? Then you have Joel Soriano, one of the best big men in the Big East, standing right under the basket, ready to just hand it to you. And that's what he did all game. Um, the man defense works a lot. And I feel like there is a world where a zone defense works. Maybe not this zone. Maybe not the formation they're running it in. But they need to do better. And Hurley needs to understand. He needs to know his personnel when deciding what defensive sets to run. Because that that was annoying. Yeah. And the 2-1-2. Two just that that's a wash um we can't run that or they at least need to work on it because there's times when Andre Curbelo was catching the ball on the block the smallest guy in the court he's about six feet tall in sneakers maybe even 5'11 he was just catching the ball on, on the block and turning around having a good shot at a layup um and Andre Curbelo dresses like Morpheus I'll add yeah they did the was two one two zone you mentioned. They also did a little bit of one three one with Klinger should all go in the middle of that three. And when they did that, they had Hassan Diara, who's the shortest player that gets minutes on our roster, is the one down low. I get he's quick and he can shift from side to side, but I don't. Th I think he'd be much better at the top to get a maybe pick off a pass, get a steal. I mean, the formations didn't make too much sense. They were just St. John's was just plowing through us, but the zone man didn't really matter. Yeah, Diara is definitely our most capable defender. Um, he earns his minutes. He played 20 minutes this game, which has to be a season high for him. I have not done research on Diara's minutes, 
but I have to assume this is his season high. And he made great work on the defensive end, but I mean, his lack of scoring kind of hurts. And he um he got fouled on a three-point shot, which is where a majority of his points came from. Uh, I think he had two at the line and then just one other field goal. But I mean, I'd, I'd love to have him starting with Newton having another stinker. Uh, I'm not sure where he went or what happened with him. I'm sure we'll get to that. But yeah, having DR slide in may not be the worst idea. Yeah, that was my next point with the starting lineup is I, I feel that DR has earned his starting spot. I mean, something we just talked about before Connor hit the record button was in our losses this year, our four losses. Tristan Newton has, I I believe he's had seven, six, six, and zero points in those losses. So it seems to be that in the losses, in the tough games, we'll call it, he's just been a non-factor which we can't have in Big East. But we can't have people being non-factors in any games in the Big East. Even against Georgetown, DePaul, any game in the Big East, we cannot have any non-factors, especially in the starting five. Um, I mean, we talked about last uh, couple episodes ago how if it, it ain't broke, don't fix it with the starting lineup. And I'm ready to take that take and throw it in the garbage because it's broke right now. Um, Our starting lineup just isn't playing well together. And I think it is time to switch it up. I think it's time to put Caravan and Newton on the bench and bring in Hassan Diar and Donovan Klingon. I mean, Wednesday against Seton Hall. Seton Hall is a a middle-of-the-pack, if not low, lower-pack team here in the Big East. And why not try it against them? Because after that, we've got... um, I know we've got Xavier on the 25th. And then we've got... Oh, man. Help me out here. Who we got? Who's the one? After Xavier, you got DePaul and then George. Okay, so maybe against DePaul. Try that. But, I mean, something's got to be different about this starting line. You can't keep Newton, Hawkins, Jackson, Caravan, Sonogo for the rest of the season because it's going to get old. Teams are starting to figure it out, and it's going to make this team's downfall even worse. So I just – I think we got to switch the starting lineup around. I mean – it's it it's really what you have to do. Yeah, and the thing about Newton is when his offense isn't there, there's not much he does better than DR. Your defense takes a step up with DR. DR is very good at operating the pick and roll, making a play at the end of a shot clock, even though he can't score too well. So I really would like to see DR's minutes go up, and I think he's earned it with his defensive activity, with his playmaking. And I I really need to see something out of Tristan Newton as well because – his stats coming from ECU, he was, you know, one of the better players in the transfer portal, and he's just not been playing very well for us. One thing I just want to point out quickly is college basketball is a 40-minute game. Why do you have two players playing 37 of those 40 minutes? What sense does that make? I can understand Hawkins because he's your entire offensive output, scoring 31 or 74, but Caravan, Caravan playing 37 out of 40 minutes is mind-blowing to me. Sure, he played more aggressive this game, and you love what you saw, but 37 minutes for a guy who on defense has been shaky all season? He hasn't proven anything on defense? Why are you playing him 37 minutes over guys like Aline? Klingon played nine. Uh, I'm pretty sure he was in a little bit of foul trouble. And Calcaterra played 14 and shot two of eight. The team just is not built deep. Um, we looked great in preseason. I feel like that was mostly due to weaker competition outside of the few ranked opponents we had. But if you've noticed in the games where we've played lower teams, that's where Calcaterra has really shown up. His best game was against Georgetown, who are historically bad with Patrick Ewing as their head coach. Um, the Big East is tough, man. And I feel like we're just in for a long season if these guys don't step up. Because these guys, every 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 game's a dogfight. Every game, everybody's coming at you, and it's just impossible to survive if you're gonna play. You know, nine man rotation, and you got three guys scoring zero points. Yeah, that was exactly gonna be my next point. Is I think that of all the attributes that Dan Hurley has, his rotational, whatever you want to use, substitution, whatever. The way he does subs and rotations, I think, is his worst thing about him. Because, I mean, we noticed it in March last year. We ran with, what, pretty much a seven-man rotation? You all know the starting lineup, and then Gaffney and Polly off the bench. It was pretty much that. 
And I think that's maybe Hawkins off the bench too sometimes when he wasn't hurt. But I feel like that's always been his worst, the worst thing about him. You know, when Caribbean's having a game like that with 16 points, I don't necessarily mind him playing 37 minutes, but you can't have him out there as the only lone defender defending the post if you're going to go with that stupid 1-3-1 zone with a center in the middle. I mean, you just can't have that. You got to put some, like, I just, I don't know what to do about the rotations, but something's got to be done because the rotations we have right now aren't working. And I can't stress this enough. I don't care what their name is. I don't care how tall they are. If they're not having a good game, do not put them on the floor. I mean, that's just, that's like logical college basketball knowledge. You know, if someone's not having a good game, don't put them on the floor. There's no reason for Tristan Newton to place 18 minutes in that game. He wasn't having a good game. Put Diara out there for 30 minutes and Newton for 10, for all I care. If he doesn't score in the first half, I'm not playing him in the second half. But, I mean, something's got to be done about these rotations. And I'm really hoping that we see in Seton Hall and Butler on Sunday was the one we missed there, Connor. Um, But in one of those games, two easy opponents that we can beat, I just, I hope I see a change in the rotations because I'm not going to lie, I'm going to be pretty pissed if we don't. Yeah, and a lot of people love to scrutinize Hurley um, for the rotations and everything and, you know, the, the defensive schemes and the offensive schematics. But what a lot of people don't, like, take into account is that a lot of these guys are come and go with how they're playing. You know, Calcaterra will have a game where he'll have 14 points, hit three three-pointers, and then the next game he'll be blank. Hurley can't control that. Hurley does what he can. And Connor, I know we were sitting together at the game behind us. There were a lot of people talking about how this was all Dan Hurley's fault and how Dan Hurley stinks. That's not the case, man. Dan Hurley can't make Joey Calcaterra shoot three-pointers better. Joey Calcaterra, or Dan Hurley, can't make Naheem Aline play good. It's like he can't control those things. Sure, he can control how much they're in, how much they're out, but when you're having this much inconsistency throughout an entire nine-man rotation, it makes it very hard to control these things. Yeah, and I just want to quickly point out that I was not bashing on Dan Hurley there. That loss isn't on him. I mean, that's on the roster. But even still, he's got to oh, – man. Yeah, in that bar area, me and Matt sat in for St. John's. There weren't many kind thoughts going around about really anything. And I just want to fact check a stat. Matt said we don't have to. I just looked because I was curious about DR's minutes. He played a lot early on before – we went out, of Port- went out to Portland when there was no Hawkins, no Jackson. He actually played 34 minutes in one game. But 20 minutes is his ties his season high since that PKI tournament. So really the most we've seen of him really in, against good competition. And I have a couple – I know we mentioned the Newton, how he's struggled in the losses. He's averaging under five points in almost 29 minutes per game in the losses, which, I mean, that's got to change. And I think it did change a little bit. First St. John's, I'm sure Dan Hurley didn't go into the game thinking Tristan Newton's going to play 18 minutes. I'm sure he had his typical game plan of him playing 30, 32 minutes. But, so I feel like he did make one change there in his rotation, which that's good to see. It's a sign of improvement. And one more quick side note on the rotations. I think him and his staff, they have a game plan going into a game. Like I assume they do. Like who's coming out when, on which each time out, who's coming in, who's coming out. It's really, I mean, but you got to go away from that sometimes. I mean... We saw it with Newton a little bit. He didn't play much in the second half. It was mostly DR or even Andre at the point at times. But you got to play the hot hands, even though there weren't many hot hands for St. John's. You got to you gotta figure things out. I think he tends to overthink it, uh, Coach Hurley does. Like, um, for example, not trying to incorporate Klingon and Sonogo a lot. Those are two of your more talented players. Um. I think he really does tend to overthink it. Um, I think there's some simpler solutions, especially in game, like you said, with the hot hands. Um, There's some simpler solutions than – I don't know what his problem is with it, but there's just sometimes where he overcomplicates his rotations, and it doesn't make sense to me as fans. I would love to know his thinking as a coach, but I'm sure we never will know his exact thinking because he likes to keep that private. 
Yeah, definitely. I don't think we'll be getting that information anytime soon, unless maybe he comes on the pod in the off season. Maybe we'll try to work that out, pick his brain in a little bit. But besides the point here, I have a couple more players that I highlighted some stats. First of all, Klingon. I just in our last four games, he had four points versus Xavier. Okay, he didn't play much. That was really a Sunogo game. First Providence, he played a career high at the time minutes. He had twelve. He had four versus Creighton in the win. That was when Sunogo went off. He had, let's see, he had 20 against Marquette, and he did not score against uh, St. John. So he's been very inconsistent with his production. And part of that is how much time he's getting on the court when obviously him and Sonogo have been splitting time. And I think that'll change in the very near future, but we'll get to that shortly. But, I mean, I'd like to see a consistency. Like, I always say this, I stress this, I want consistency. Like, even with a guy like Joey, like, I don't want to see any zeros in there. I'd rather see a couple of eights as opposed to a 14 and a zero. And also Nahimaline, a guy we brought in, he's supposed to be, he was a great shooter at Virginia Tech. We think he's one of the guys to help us on the perimeter. He has not made a three-pointer in 2023. We are four games in, and he has three total points in 2023. So obviously he's he has not been what we thought, and I, I we keep on saying maybe he'll turn it around, but at this point he's really he hasn't done. Is will he turn it around? We don't know. I mean, I could see him potentially being a guy that falls out of the rotation in March, like St. John's. They have a couple of guys like that play occasionally. Like they had, let's see here, uh, Stanley. He started but just played six minutes. He's really just in there for size. Colby King of guard played just two minutes. They have guys, they have depth that they can play occasionally, like when the matchups are right. We really just have our nine man rotation. And after that, we have Richie Springs. So I guess he kind of fits that mold, but we haven't really seen him. I don't think we will. And then obviously, Hassoon and Rumaglau, we're not going to see much of them. But Rumaglau did get it. Rumaglau did get in versus St. John's game after Joey fouled out. And I mean, he didn't really do anything wrong or right. So good for him to get in the game, I guess. And that's actually what I want to talk about um, next is, I mean, Joey fouling out. First of all, that game, this, this episode, I'm not going to fully blame the refs because we played terrible. Um, St. John's didn't play very good either, but 51 fouls in a big East game is just inexcusable. I mean, we had 30 St. John's had 21 even the St. John's 21, some of the fouls on them, on us, I was just like, why are you blowing the whistle for possession fouls? They're just going to make this game longer. Like, Connor, I think you said, what, this game lasts two and a half hours that you were there? I mean, that's just, that's ridiculous. And towards the end of this game, where what, they were throwing people out for absolutely no reason. They threw Sonogo out. They threw Curbelo out. Joey fouled out. Like, it was, it got out of hand. And I've seen that way too many times this year, where Big East games just get out of hand by the refs trying to take control of it, but not doing it the right way. And I just, I think that couldn't go without saying, because it's something that, I mean, really UConn and St. John's fans came together and said that there were way too many fouls called, but I just, the sense of entitlement in that game really, really bothered me. And I just feel like that's, that's something that's really got to be looked at by the biggies. I mean, these two squads play what, maybe 50 miles away from each other. Um, I don't know if that's right. I'm not a, a geography whiz, but it might be right. But, uh, you know, you can't, you just can't call that many fouls. And I felt like every time really even St. John's made a run, they got the ball back foul. Every time we were trying to make a run foul. So those refs just absolutely took the pace of that game and shattered it because that pace of that game was just so inconsistent. I mean, every time I felt like the UConn crowd got into it, Foul, foul, foul every single time. And it's it it bothers me. I mean, it's it's just a pain to like it makes watching the game not fun. I mean, I had the whistle stuck in my head after that game, but it's definitely something that that needs to be looked at by the Big East further. Yeah, and it's UConn versus St. John's. It's gonna be physical. And it was refreshing to see how physical and chippy it was for me because it takes you back to some classic matchups of UConn versus St. John's that have been dating back for like 30 years at this point. And, you know, there was a lot of ticky tacky stuff called, and I'm not saying it's the reason UConn lost because um, obviously we weren't the better team that day, but it's just the refs can't really control a game like that. When the whole thing about the big East is physicality. And the whole thing the fans want to see is that physical 
um, nature of a UConn versus St. John's game. And for a fan like me, I was a little upset about how much the refs were blowing the whistle and how um, minuscule some of the fouls were that they blew the whistle on. There was a moment in the game, I'm not sure when it was, where one of the referees actually stood into the crowd. He walked into the crowd and started yelling at a fan. I'm not sure what the conversation was or what the fan was yelling, whether it was directed at him, uh, at a player. Uh, I don't know any of the specifics behind that, but I feel like that is unacceptable. Um, You're kind of just there to do your job. You know what I mean? No one's really there for you is the main, the main thing. Um, You need to stay on the court and you need to focus on the game at hand, especially when you're calling this many fouls uh, and the game is as dirty as you think it is. You don't need to be worrying about the fans. You let them talk. Because at the end of the day, they don't even know your name. So um, they, the, the the whole crew, I feel like, just needs to be looked at by the Big East. And moving forward, stuff like that just cannot happen. Yeah, I saw clips all over Twitter. I actually saw two, and it was the same guy who went halfway down the tunnel and then came back out. It was at halftime. He went halfway down the tunnel, came back out, started yelling at a fan, and then went into the stands. And that, to me, is just unacceptable because you are there to ref a basketball game. The fans are not your priority. XL Center has many, many security guards for that very reason. And I just feel like when refs do that, you know, if you have to go and tell a security guard something because a fan said something that you thought was rude, then fine. But, you know, once you go into that crowd and start talking to a fan, then your head is at wherever, whoever that fan has on their jersey. You know, that fan's wearing a UConn jersey, bam instant fouls on them even if it's a St. John's jersey and instant fouls on them but I feel like once they get sidetracked from the game is when the game just automatically starts sinking and I feel like that's another thing that needs to be looked at is you are their ref basketball game the fans are not your concern do not worry about what the fans say that is for security to handle there are two different positions at that place um but yeah really just what Matt said too about that same guy just going into the crowd is it's pretty unacceptable to me you know if if it was something that was really really rude and uncalled for that fan should be kicked out but again that's security's job the refs can't try to do a million things at once because then the game gets out of hand just like we saw on sunday afternoon so it's the whole roughing situation from this game is just a huge huge red flag and if I was a commissioner of the Big East, it's a huge red flag, and I'd be looking at it right now. Yeah, and you see sometimes players, you know, they get active with the players in the stands during games, and they get repri- reprimanded so fast. They go at these players really fast for that. Uh, there was a notable moment uh, a few years ago down in Philadelphia, I think it was, uh, something about a frosty uh Isaiah Thomas walked into the crowd and started screaming at the, at the fans and I, they punished him pretty quickly. I'm pretty sure. And he's a player and they were like screaming some messed up stuff at him. So I can only imagine what the punishment will look like for a referee who has nothing to do with the game. And honestly, is were they yelling at him? We don't know. I guess we'll see, but I, I'm just very curious to see how this will end. I'm not sure if the game was sold out or not. I don't have the stat, but if it wasn't, it was pretty damn close. And I guarantee you, I can 100% fact, there was more than one fan who was mad at the ref during that game, probably 95% of them. So it just seems kind of nitpicky to go after one guy. I don't. We Obviously, we don't know what he said. It's also, I don't know, like 13,000 people close to it, 12,000. I mean, how how clearly can you hear them if you're on the court? I mean, it's a loud game. I mean, there's some parts of this that we don't know that we need to find out about but overall the refs they had a rough game and i'll quickly go over some of the flagrants and technicals because they were there's the whole 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 platter there there was Klingon and david jones they had a little tie up in the backcourt Klingon grabbed the rebound he was like swinging his elbows and hit jones in the face and then jones as they were running down around half court he he fought back and like gave him a little shove that got double flagrants and then in the first half, late in the first half, I believe, it was Hassan Diara and Posh Alexander each got a technical. I don't, honestly don't know what happened there. Probably just some words exchanged. And then, like we mentioned, Adama, he was ejected with 57 seconds left, pretty much for arguing a call. The refs at that point, two and a half hours in, they were just, you say anything, you're gone. That mindset, I guess, which I don't agree with. I mean, 
the rest tried to make it about themselves. They did the same thing with Curbelo with 10 seconds left. You kind of just shoot two additional free throws just to prolong the game. I mean, it was really I don't I don't really get mad about officiating too often, but basketball college basketball games should last around two hours. That's what the TV time slot is usually. Maybe a little more or less depending on the pace of the game, but calling 51 fouls in the game that in the end of the day wasn't that competitive is just mind-boggling to me. Yeah, and you said it. That's how I would describe the refs as nitpicky. And you can't do that because when you're an official, it's a lot about keeping a consistent pace to the game. And if letting if both the teams are going to play physical, letting them play physical. And if both the teams aren't going to play physical, then um, calling a little bit more. But it just wasn't consistent. Um, there was no pace because the refs were making it about themselves, you know, so – yeah, it was a poorly officiated game, I'd say. And I don't say that too often. I've rarely blamed the refs. I just want to talk about the Klingon technical for a second because they didn't call that. They called that nothing. They saw what he did, and it was a very wide open play. They were the only people in the backcourt. So I don't understand how you're going to not call that as a flagrant. And then we're coming back down the court, and he gets an elbow to the neck. And all of a sudden, he did something wrong. You have to call that if you feel like he did something wrong. It shouldn't take a replay review to call something that was that obvious over. Because the St. John's player shouldn't have reacted that way. And I, honestly, Klingon shouldn't have done what he did. To me, that was a little unnecessary that he just stood there and started flinging his elbows around. That was unnecessary. But the way that the St. John's player reacted was honestly just inexcusable. And I feel like if you're not going to punish Klingon the first time for it, don't look back at it and then all of a sudden decide, hey, like we're going to give you a double tech. That's not That shouldn't be how it works. The way I put it is that Klingon's play was definitely a foul. You know, he swung his elbows around, but it's more of a basketball play. You know, if you if you want to give that a foul, fine. I mean, he swung his elbows. He was he was trying to get the defender off, but that's a basketball play. David Jones was running up the court. Klingon didn't have the ball, and he stopped in front of a seven foot two guy and elbowed him right in the I don't know if it was the chest area or the neck, but up in the higher region of Donovan Klingon. And then he fell on top of Jones, and Jones acted like Klingon picked him up and dropped him. Like I just feel that wasn't a basketball play, first of all. But I feel like if you're going to call that, you got to call doubles or you just got to let the play go because it's going to be a physical game. Like Sark said, UConn-St. John's always going to be physical. There's not going to be a day where UConn-St. John's don't play physical. But, I mean, in that situation, the way they handled that was just so terrible. And that's another thing that you got to put on that list of what we already said. And if that wasn't Donovan clinging behind him, that's a face shot on every on any other player we have. So, you know, I should be a little grateful that I was clinging behind him doing that and not anyone else. Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, I'm trying to remember here. They didn't call it right away after the shove. It took like UConn did their typical pass the ball around the perimeter 12 times to throw up a three. They didn't get their three off that time because the ref stopped it. It took the entire bench to stand up and practically go on the court arguing. Every fan was like the typical crowd. Whoa! Like it was, it, it took like 10 seconds for the rest to stop play and review it. So, I mean, I don't know if they, I think they didn't see it. They're obviously they're all looking at the play on the other half of the court, but it's just not a good look. The whole refing situation overall. And I think we'll, we'll really kill that there with all the fouls and stuff. I just want to talk about the game flow, the play for a second, and then we'll move on. Um, UConn was down 64 to 60 after Jordan Hawkins put back a Miss Joey three with around seven, eight minutes left. And after that, they were down four, and St. John's went on a 16 to four run to, to just take the game away. I don't know how that happens. I mean, there was a competitive game back and forth up to that point, but they really just kept on missing shots. And that was really when the zone was falling apart. Like, Let's see here. Curbelo had a couple of baskets during then. There was also a lot of fouls. Soriano had a couple buckets. So really just, I don't know. It's just uncharacteristic of this team to be in such a dogfight and just give in like that 16-4 to run, like put the game away. And after that run, Joey did make a couple of threes. So it's good for him. He saw a couple go through. But like I think Matt mentioned earlier in the episode, they were in garbage time. And you want guys producing earlier in the game. 
Like if he makes those two threes 10 minutes later, we got a completely different ball game. And J- Jordan Hawkins, he had a career high 31. He got, I'm glad he got to his 30, he drew a foul. The rest gave it to him with like 10 seconds left. So he made both free throws. So I'm happy for him there. He it's due for a 30 point game. So I'm happy it finally happened, but his last three point attempt and he's our, he's our best shooter. I mean, there's no looking around that really, especially with some of the struggles some of our guys are having his last three point attempt attempt came when it was 68 to 60 with over six and a half minutes to play. And that's when you you need your guys jacking up shots late, like Joey did and Naheem put up a couple. But how does a guy who ends with 30 points not take a single shot from three where he hit, I believe, four for nine in the game, if I'm not mistaken, his final? How do you not take a single three in the last six and a half minutes when your team is trailing? I mean, that that was a little mind-boggling to me. Obviously, they have they had Posh Alexander on him, who former Big East co-defensive player of the year with Isaiah Whaley a couple of years ago. So he's a great perimeter defender. But you're at that point, you're down by 10 or 12 with three minutes. You just got to jack up shots and hope they go in. He didn't even do any of that. That's just a little confusing to me. Yeah, and that's been a theme in all of our losses <clears throat> is the wheels falling off the bus within the last 10 minutes of the game. Um, every loss you look at, that's exactly what happened. And um, I just don't get that. And all of our wins, I'll add, have come by you know, big margins. I think our lowest um, win was like nine points. And so – that's just been what's happening, especially over the last couple games. The wheels have just fallen off at the end of the bus. I don't know or at the end of the game. I don't know if they're getting tired. I don't know exactly what's going on, but this is what's happening. This has been our losing formula is just giving in at the end of games. No one really taking control. College basketball game is 40 minutes. Everybody on this roster has to be good for 40 minutes, not 39 minutes, 40 minutes. And that's what's happened really, in our losses, like Sark just said, with the wheels falling off the bus towards the last five minutes of the game. But I don't, I really don't know how Hawkins doesn't end up with the ball in those six and a half minutes. I mean, why are we trying to force it to Sonogo inside, who's being defended by Joel Soriano, who pretty much had the best game for a Johnny, I think, in my opinion. But it's just, we have to be better at the ends of games. I mean, that game was close all the way until I feel like that like nine or eight minute mark where we just started to go down and down and then we fell off a cliff. I mean, it's just, we have to be good for all 40 minutes. It, that's what it comes down to. We can't, we can't take it. Like we can't take teams in the big East for initiative. I know their roster doesn't look good, but St. John's is going to come to play every single night. You know that every big East team is going to come to play every single night. But I just feel that, that they can't play like that towards the end of the games. It's just, it can't happen. And if, if they continue to do that, they're not going to win. Yeah. You mentioned basically fell apart with like 10 or so minutes left before that 16 to four run. It was consistently a four to six or seven point game for around five minutes. We kept on trading baskets because every time we would score, we wouldn't stop St. John's. So we weren't really making any progress there. Then we just fell apart. And one more thing here from the St. John's game, a name I'm surprised we haven't mentioned, Andre Jackson. He did not have a great game. You could argue one of his worst since he's really been a contributor for this Husky squad. Let's see. He finished with two points, six rebounds, and one assist. He fouled out in 20 minutes. I mean, I don't know. He was in foul trouble. He's had a couple of games like that. Like the Providence game comes to mind. He didn't play in the first half, essentially. But the foul trouble with him, his his fifth foul, honestly, looking at like at the game where we were sitting, it was it looked like how is that a foul? But I watched back, he clearly extended his arm and pushed Posh to the ground. So I'm not surprised they call that there. But he's really just gotta be a smarter player. I mean, he didn't take any threes, which I mean, I'm not saying it's good or bad. That's just a stat. I'm not really too frustrated or happy with that. It's just I expect more from him. He's a team captain on this team. I mean he only hit one assist, like I said. Not really too many assists on the team, just 13. DR led with four. But I just really expected more from Jackson. And in our losses, he hasn't been great, but he's definitely – actually, I lied. He almost had a triple-double versus Xavier. So I'll give him that one. He was good in that one. But besides that, he hasn't really been great in our losses. Just He really needs to clean that up. Yeah, I'm just going to credit that to uh, St. John's and their overall just demeanor, how they played. Um. I've been talking about Soriano all year. We couldn't do anything on him. He's just a tank. And 
Jackson, I felt took a big took a big hit from that. Uh, not as many rebounds as he usually gets. Kind of just you know playing around the perimeter a little more than maybe he should. I don't think he took a three pointer. Um, it was also surprising. Um, yeah, I mean they did a fantastic job containing him. Uh, he took the ball up a few times, but nothing really came from it. Uh, yeah, just overall good defense from St. John's. I'll give the one to them. I, I feel like there wasn't much he could have done outside of what he did do, to be entirely honest. Well, this is the last negative thing I'm going to say about this game, but then I want to do say something positive. Uh, they really, their biggest error in this game was letting an opposing player get in their head at home. And that man was Andre Curbelo. I mean, he came into the place with a whole St. John's bright red jumpsuit on with those stupid tinted sunglasses. I don't know what those are for. And then the headband with the afro. And I think he had grills on too. Like he just came in with, I mean, the appearance of a lifetime. And I mean, I said this when we previewed St. John's that he wasn't going to be like, the biggest like numbers guy, but he's a guy that you hate to play against, but would love on your team because he, he doesn't care if he shoots Oh, for 90, he's still going to say something that gets in your head, makes you have a tough game. And I mean, he, he caught us sleeping. He was on the block getting layups and stuff. And that, in my opinion, was their biggest error. But the one big positive about the, about this game is that Jordan Hawkins, I feel like opened the eyes of a lot of NBA scouts because his, like how he creates his own shot is getting so much better. Um, and I think that really opens the eyes. You know, he attacked the rack like I'd asked him to do a couple of times ago. Um, but I feel like really this game with his 31 points really opened the eyes of a lot of NBA scouts, not only because of the points, but how he creates his own shot, how he passes the ball. But I, th- I think that's just really what's going to make this team better is him being that good every single night. And if, if there's more than one positive that I'm missing, that's the only one. Yeah, and I just we'll move on here from the whole St. John's game. I just want to another little stat correction here. I was pretty did some short change with the XL Center. It was a sellout, fifteen thousand five hundred or so. So I said twelve or thirteen. There's more than that there. But and one more thing, I this is another sidetrack. We're doing a lot of that this episode. But at, once around the under four hit about around a third of the XL center cleared out. I mean, I don't like to see that. I mean, obviously you want to beat the traffic, the game's over, but I, I that's just something I don't like to see. It's one of my pet peeves, I guess you go to the game. You want, I'd st- I always stay till the end. At least I try to. Um, it's just, you see some cool stuff, honestly. I mean, maybe not cool to see Adama Sonogo ejected, but you could say you saw that or you see Cabrello ejected or all these technical free throws and I don't know it's just I me personally I would never leave a game early if I didn't have to the rest who stayed uh showered the team with booze as well um it's 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 not understandable you know usually you see this stuff happen when there's a real issue I don't feel like there's that much of a real issue to be entirely honest I feel like you have a bad game I honestly feel like that's just what happened Guys who needed to show up didn't. You know, I could blame the other ones on schematics. Uh, I don't, I'm not going to do that with this one. The away games were a pain to watch. This one, it, it was just frustrating to watch how inconsistent everybody was. Um, you can't, You're booing a 15-4 and four nationally ranked team off the court for what? You know what I mean? Because they lost at home to St. John's. I feel like if, if you're going to do that, then I feel like you don't, entirely deserve to you know reap the benefits that will come with this team as the season goes on as they grow together as they learn to play more as a team because we forget these guys are how many of them are brand new players to the program who haven't played you know a full season under Hurley who haven't played a full season of this highly competitive play it happens you know you have roadblocks you have setbacks and I feel like booing your team off the floor after a loss is no way to treat a team that's played this good this far when the expectation was so low. Also with the fans, they're they I notice a trend. They're starting to grow a little tired of Sonogo catch the ball, hold it for five seconds, then make a move. There was one point late in the game, he caught the ball. They were down by like 15, and there were audible moans and groans across the entire arena, like this again, really. But that's just I don't know. He's a all American candidate, big East preseason player of the year. I mean, I want him 
having the ball. Maybe not at that stage in the post when we need three-pointers to come back in it, but fans can't be doing that. That's an extreme overreaction. And I feel like he knows. Um, he, uh, You noticed he would just force it out a little bit. He would just throw some wayward passes. I'm not sure if this is something that Danny's telling him to do or if it's something that he's choosing to do. You know, I bet the the main goal is to get him in the post, but I, I feel like he he feels like something's a little wrong and he um he he needs to get the ball out of his hands and I, and I feel like he's crumbling a little bit to that pressure that's been happening. Um, overall, I feel like Sonogo is is, is kind of hearing a lot of it and you know kind of audibling out of these post plays. And now, finally, we are, I think we're done talking about the St. John's game. And I'll move on. Next UConn home game, they're playing Butler, like we mentioned, next Sunday. I mean, tickets, they're not too pricey from other games because the team, I guess they're struggling. It's Butler, not a high-quality opponent. But I see on the app SeatGeek here, they're starting at around $29, $29 each. So, But if you use code HBTH at checkout, for the Butler game or any UConn game, any sporting event, you get $20 off your first purchase. So that $29 ticket is really, really $9. I mean, that's cheaper than parking. I mean, you could park for 10 tickets for nine. I mean, you're set. I mean, UConn Butler, I think they will, UConn will bounce back in that game. Hopefully make it two straight wins after the Seton Hall game, which we'll talk about for a minute after this. But yeah, I mean, they need, I mean, we need UConn fans that go to the game and cheer on the team and not boo them. And I know that's you listening. So come on out on Sunday. $29 tickets are starting at. That could be $9, but code HBTA should check out on SeatGeek and I go Huskies. And uh, now we'll move on to the Seton Hall game. We're going to talk about it very briefly. We've been rambling on for a minute. We're not. I think I'll speak for all of us here. We're not going to give our player predictions. This team has lost two in a row. You got to look out for everyone. We've said this before. But one thing I do want to touch on, maybe you can chi- you all can chime in what you think. I think we will see a starting lineup change for Seton Hall. And honestly, I believe there are four combinations. I know that's a lot, but I mean, well, well the first combination, I'll go the easy route. Hurley stays with what he's got. I don't think he will. He'll stay with Newton, Hawkins, Jackson, Caravan, Sonogo. Next combination, we'll call it combination two. We got DR replacing Newton in that group. The next one, which is an interesting one we've all been talking about for a while, and Seton Hall's a team. They play bigger. They have Nadefo inside and Samuel. They could do it. We just replaced Klingon with Newton. And then the last one, I don't – this one's a real wild card. I don't see it happening. Is Samson Johnson returns to the starting lineup, and he just replaces Newton, and they play bigger that way. I honestly think it'll be either the lineup with Diara or Klingon. Honestly, if I was a betting man, I'd put the money on Diara replacing Newton, and that's the only change. I know, Andrew, you did mention Caravan. He may come out, but I think after back-to-back great games, I don't think that'll happen. But for the Seton Hall game, I do personally expect our first true lineup change of the season with no injuries involved. Yeah. I know like, the thing about Caravan is like, He's had some great games, but at some points you got to wonder if putting Klingon in the starting lineup is going to to pay off more. And I, I do have to agree that I think the lineup change will only be DR for Newton because he's not just going to throw a whole new lineup out there um, against a team that, by the way, is definitely capable of beating us. Don't take this game as a, as a wash. It's on the road. They are a team that's capable of beating us because Shereem Holloway doesn't care who he's playing. He's going to put his best five on the floor and he's going to compete out there every single time. Um, but this is, I feel like a perfect game to show the fans that we can win on the road, you know, besides obviously the first one at Hinkle Fieldhouse in Indiana, which was a good win. Don't get me wrong, but you know, Seton Hall, strong fan base, all the kids are going to be back at school now, I think. Um, but this, this is going to be a perfect game, you know, for, us to show well not us the team to show the fans that they can win on the road and they can win up by a lot on the road so I I really feel like this is a game where it's not necessarily a trap game but it's a game it's it's a get back game if if you guys know what I mean yeah uh, I just want to make my input about the Klingon I don't think we'll see uh, Klingon in the starting lineup this season just my honest opinion Um, that's not because you know he's he hasn't earned it or anything 
I just feel like Hurley's a little nervous about his how he's a freshman and a lot of the fouls he commits, he can get into foul trouble really quickly. Sonogo does a good job, you know, staying out of foul trouble, you know, staying in the game. When uh, you know, you you could play him this year. I don't think he'll be here next year, to be honest. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. But I feel like he's just nervous about clinging and he wants to maximize his minutes, maximize his usage. So I feel like taking off the bench is the best idea. And I feel like on the other hand, if you were to start clinging, you would have a huge match of uh, mismatch with Sonogo coming off because who on the bench of any team is going to be able to stop him from scoring? No one that also forces the other coach to make changes, but that's a whole other thing that is the coach's job. Yeah, I do agree. It's unlikely that Klingon will start alongside Sonogo, but I do think with, I'll say it firmly, we will see that lineup together, Sonogo and Klingon at some point in the Seton Hall game, just because of the size they have. And I'll finish this off here with a couple of quotes from post-game presser that stuck out to me. This was, he asked, this from David Borges on Twitter. He asked Hurley if he needs to switch things up and make some changes. And the quote was, oh yeah, definitely going to be looking for a spark here. When I think of Spark, I think of Hassan Diara. I think that will be the move that we do. And also a quote, I believe this is from one of the players. I don't have who it was in front of me. We've become a team that's easy to beat. And if you would have thought the players would be saying that even two weeks ago, I mean, the the, the rails have really fallen off here. And I think they'll bounce back. They have a fairly... I don't want to say easy schedule. No game are easy. No games are easy in the Big East. But next couple of games, then you have Xavier, who's now in the top ten, at home, next week. But it'll be interesting to see. And yeah, I think that'll just about do it here for episode nineteen. UConn has, as I mentioned, Seton Hall up next on Wednesday. That'll be an interesting game. But we there's a chance if you I if you guys know we did go live for the Mar- Marquette game last week we may go live we'll keep you posted on that for sure if it happens but yeah thanks for thanks for watching and stay tuned for future episodes go huskies